Well, amen. I'm glad that you're here. I want to invite you this morning to, uh, so would you turn me up just a notch, just a little bit? If I get too loud, you can turn me down. Amen. Okay, glad you're here. That may be a little loud. I'm probably better off. I should have just kept my mouth shut. Uh, glad you're here. Let's take our Bible this morning, and I want you to go with me back to Luke chapter 15, okay? Luke chapter 15, out of all the stories that our Lord told when he was on earth, Probably the parable of the prodigal son is the most known. It's a parable that every preacher preaches uh, at different times, drawing out different applications. In my uh, 16 years here, I think maybe this is the fourth, fifth time that we've looked at the, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Okay? Charles Dickens said that it's the greatest short story that's ever been written. Okay? Now, what's interesting, it's called the story of the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son, but the word prodigal is never used in the story. Uh, it, the title kind of comes from the younger son who goes off a little wayward. Uh, he leaves his family, goes off into the world. He's actually going to be our subject for today. Now, I don't know if you were with us last week or not, but last week I mentioned to you that one of my favorite authors or at least the guy that's becoming one of my favorite authors, is a guy by the name of Timothy Keller. He wrote a book about the prodigal son, but he, he entitled the book The Prodigal God. And the reason he did that is because he used the definition of the word prodigal as reckless, as the one who uh, holds nothing back, as the one who, who gives us all. And he wants us to understand, I think, in that book, that when God saves, when God gave his son to die on the cross of Calvary for our sin, he became reckless. He gave us all. He held nothing back. And so, therefore, God is really the prodigal. Now, that means that our story today is not going to be about the prodigal son. If God's the prodigal, it's going to be about the wayward son. And I think there's some incredible lessons for us. Okay, Now, if we're going to understand the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal son, I think we need, first of all, to discover who is Jesus talking to. And so let's take our Bible. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. And I want us to begin reading in verse 1 and 2. And kind of, I want to point out to you what I think Jesus is trying to get across. Okay, Luke 15, beginning verse 1. He says, Now all the tax gatherers, or tax collectors, and the sinners were coming near to him, to listen to him. Now verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Did you, did you see the two groups of people? On the one hand, we have the tax gatherers and the sinners. Obviously, they are going to be uh, uh, shown to us in the wayward son, the younger son who kind of gets what all he wants from his dad, goes off into the far country we'll talk about and squanders it all with loose living, okay? And then the second group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they represent to us the older son. This is the guy who would be the moralist. He'll be our subject for next week, Lord willing. The guy who we would call the religionist. 
The guy who would keep all of the laws, he would dot his I's and cross his T's of religion. Uh, the guy that actually, if you were to come to church, and if you were to see both groups of people, you would look at the moralist and say, that's the best person. For example, it would be kind of like, let me see if I can do this. It would be kind of like on this side of the church would be the motorcycle gang, okay? Yeah. Rub bacon on it, right? They, uh, this would be the group with uh, tattoos, earrings, that kind of idea, the rebels. And you'd come into church and you'd look at them and you'd say, they really need Jesus, you know. And then over here, you would look at the, the pillars of the community. You know, they would be dressed so fine in a sense. And you would look at them and you would say, that's the group. These folks really know the Lord. Now, what this story is going to tell us, though, is that both groups are outside. Both groups are wrong. Both groups are rebellious. And what's interesting in the story is this, that the ones who are on the outside ended up on the inside. And the group that was on the inside really never got in. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? The hell's angels understood. Somewhere in their rebellion and because of all the pressure that has gone on in their life and perhaps because they're searching for and looking for some meaning in life, they hear a story about a father who loves, a father whose table is set that gives them everything they're looking for and everything they're searching for and the reprobates get turned on to the love of God. And at the end of the story, we'll see today, they get it. But the religious community, the moralists, the I-daughters, and the T-crossers, Never do get it. Shake you up a little bit. In fact, let me tell you what I think. Here's what me thinks. Me thinks that the reason Jesus told the story wasn't about the rebels at all. I think Jesus told the story for those who may be caught up in religion, the moralists, who think they have all the answers, and at the end of the story, they still didn't get it. I want you to stand with me. I want us to read the story. I know you've stood a lot, but standing for the Word of God, I believe, is biblical. And I want to read, we're going to begin verse 11, and then I'm going to tell you how I want to handle today, okay? Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the sh share of the estate that falls to me. And I want you to notice something. We'll deal with this a little bit more next week. But he said, so he divided his wealth between them. 
both of them got their share, okay? It wasn't just the younger one. The other guy got, the older got his as well. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, and then he went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of that swine that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. I wonder where his friends went that were hanging out with him when he had the money, huh? But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? Ah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up and go home. I'm going to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. And yet while he was a long way off, his father saw him. i got to imagine here that the father had been watching huh? every day. Been watching for his boy, wondering when he was going to come home. While he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. Oh, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost. He's been found. They began to celebrate. Now here's scene three. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what's going on here? That's my interpretation. And he said to him, well, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him, but he answered and said to his father, look. He didn't even address him with respect. He didn't say dad. He didn't say father. Basically, he said, look here, you. For so many years... I've been serving you. I've dotted the I's. I've crossed the T's. I've never neglected a command of yours. That's a lie, by the way. And you, you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, how did he know that? You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this son of yours, I mean this brother of yours, was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. Father, 
This is an incredible story. It's called a parable. But Father, I've got to tell you, it smells really real. And I pray today that I can unfold at least the story of the younger boy, the rebellious one. Help me to unfold it. Help me to draw some applications for our life, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Be seated. Gang, let me, let me tell you how I, I kind of want to handle the story, okay? I want you to keep your Bibles open with me. And as I kind of walk through some of the elements of the story, I want you to just kind of read the verses along with me, okay? I want to bring out five or six things to you about the story. And then at the end, what I want to do is I, I want us to ask a question and try to answer it. The question is, so what? Why would Jesus tell the story? What does the story mean? What lessons could possibly be in the story that might would help me or help my family or help my church be what we're supposed to be? Okay, you with me on that? So let's take our Bibles, leave them open, begin in verse 12 with me, okay? Let me just kind of walk you through some things that I observed, okay? In fact, if you were with us last week, I mentioned to you that in that culture, the inheritance would never be divided until the patriarch, the head of the home, died. And so we have of a boy, we have a boy, a son, who, who goes to his dad and for all practical purposes said, Dad, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. Give me what's mine. Now, now gang, put yourself, be the father for a moment. If you had an inheritance that you were going to leave, I know that's stretching it for some of us, uh, and your boy knew that he was going to get $1,000. I can relate to that more than a million. And the boy comes, your son comes, and he says, Dad, as far as I'm concerned, die and get it over with. I want my $1,000. Or put yourself in the shoes of the boy, the rebellious heart of the boy. Dad, I don't care about you. I don't care what kind of dad you are. The only thing I care about, Dad, is for you to die so I can get the bucks. So that's the story. Now the amazing thing, and this is kind of what we talked about last week, the dad did that. And if you remember last week, I said to you that the dad didn't use the word for money or mammon or possessions. He used one of the words for life. And so the boy says, Dad, you're dead. And dad says, yes, I am. Here it is. And he gets it. What a dad, huh? What a dad. All right, second thing. So we find, look at the next verse. The boy, at verse 13, the boy takes, by the way, he would have gotten a third. This older boy, the religion guy, got two-thirds. Think about that. That'll come back to haunt us maybe next week. This younger boy gets his third. He puts it in a wheelbarrow. And off into the world he goes. And the Bible tells us that he squanders his estate 
with loose living. Okay, pretty graphic words. The word squandered there is an agricultural term. And it's a term where they, when, when they were winnowing grain, they would throw the grain up into the air. And the wind would blow the chaff or the bad stuff away and the good grain would fall. And so the word that Jesus uses here is a word which means that the boy literally blew his life. He blew it all. He, he blew away his life. Beloved, many a person has blown his life away seeking the things that can never make him happy. Maybe this morning you've been one of them. Maybe this morning you are one of them. Or maybe this morning you've got a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter that's done that very thing. He blew his life, and the Bible says with loose living, a word that, that if you take the word back to its original, it means that the opposite of to save, which means he lost his life. He abandoned his life, even though at first he thought he was living the life. Gang, listen to me. Young people, listen to me. Blowing your life is not living your life, even if it's fun at first. Number three, the Bible says, when he spent it all, a famine hit. Now, now gang, let me, let me address that because it's not the main emphasis of the story, but it's in the story, so therefore I think Jesus said it for us to deal with, okay? After he spent it all, in other words, while he had a pot, or a little bit of a pot, a decreasing pot, things were okay. But when the pot was gone, it was at that point a famine or an emergency hit, and he had nothing. He was a bad steward. He spent it all. You know, when you, uh, when you listen to financial advisors today, uh, they tell you that every family, every marriage needs to, first of all, set aside $1,000 in an emergency fund. We're going to be, we do that with Peace University. We're going to be offering Peace University again this fall. It's going to be uh, led by our young marrieds. I think that's so cool. They're the ones who spend all the money, you know. And our young marrieds are the ones that are smarter than some of us older ones. And they tell us, these financial advisors, that, that, that you need to set aside a thousand bucks because emergencies might come. Can I tell you, and parents that have lived a little bit, emergencies always come, eh? Then they tell us that to really be a good steward, after you set aside this $1,000, you ought to set aside at least 3, to, uh, three months to six months extra so in case you lose your job, which seems to be so prevalent today, you can at least exist, maybe not lose your house. Now, again, what, what Jesus, I think a little sidelight here is, listen, be smart about your money. If you spend it all and then the refrigerator conks out, what you going to do? Well, I can tell you, if you go to the bank, they're going to look at your report, they're going to say, eh, I ain't loaning you money, dude. You ain't got nothing for collateral. So your only option then is to do what? Yeah, credit card. Do you know that credit cards today are charging 30%? Gang, listen, you can get a better deal with the mafia. 
you know? The problem is you're going to end up sleeping with fish, probably, you know? And so what, what I think Jesus is trying to say is be smart about what you do, okay? Think about things, all right? Number four, okay? He's now in a fix. So literally he goes and he attaches himself to the world. Uh, the word is kind of he glues himself to the world. And what does the world do to this Jewish boy? He sends him to live in a pig pen. A lot of national emphasis there, okay? Did you notice there that nobody was giving him anything? Amazing, isn't it? When the money runs out, you find who your real friends are. And it's nobody, okay? It's nobody. Gang, listen, the world cannot be your friend. Because the world doesn't know anything about the grace of God. The world doesn't know what agape love is. The world doesn't know what unconditional love is. You are, you're foolish to think that the world is going to run and help you because the world has no clue about the love of God and God's kind of love. Number five. The Bible says he came to his senses. That's pretty significant. Literally, he, he came back to himself is the picture that Jesus is painting here, okay? He desires to come home. It's the smartest thing he's done in a long time. And the idea, he's been out of his head, so he's now back in his head. Sin, uh, folks, I want you to know that sin is insanity, Sin always leads to death. And then number six, he acknowledges his sin and he repents. He comes home, he asks for forgiveness. Certainly, any dad would grant forgiveness, any dad that's worth anything in any event. And he says to his dad, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. You know what? He's right. You know what? You're not either. I'm not either. None of us are. And gang, if we have any hope of ever being a son, it is through the gift of the Father, the gift of grace, and our corresponding repentance. That's what grace is all about. We can't be good enough. We can't earn it. It's through grace. You are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should hope, you see. So he goes back to his father, and the father receives him back. Now, that's basically the story, okay? That's a little bit of the sidelights of the story. The question is, what's the lesson for us? Well, I drew out three things, that, and we're going to put them on on. On, on the board for us, okay? The first one is that there is a natural desire of humanity to walk away from God. You see, folks, this young boy in the story is me. And the young boy in the story is you. Now, we may not like to say that, and we may not like to admit that. And we certainly, as the religious ones, 
would think, that's not us. Man, I don't act that. I don't look like that. I don't act like that. I don't smell that like that. I don't treat others, especially my family, I don't treat others like that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We all do. The natural bent of humanity has always been and will always be away from the Father, away from God. There's just something within man because of his nature, because of his Adamic nature, all the way back to Adam, that just loves to sin and is drawn toward sin. The best Christian, I think, who ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And Paul said, you know, I don't want to do that. But I always seem to be doing that. I'm the chief of all sinners. Let me give you some verses. Look at Matthew, Matthew 22. I believe, listen to what Jesus said. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Man has never been willing to come to God until God begins to take the initiative to change his heart. Let me give you a second verse. We, we know John 3.16 well, but what about John 3.19? And this is judgment, that light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Hmm? Turn with me, we're going to put Romans up there, but if you have your Bibles, I'd rather you turn. Turn with me to, to Romans chapter 1. Would you do that for just a minute? Romans chapter 1, um, we'll begin reading verse 18 through uh, verse 23, okay? I can hear the angels' wings turning, huh? <laughs> Romans 1, 18. And gang, these verses deal with the universality of sin of all mankind. These verses are talking about you and me. It's talking about this wayward boy that ran away from the love of the Father. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The word suppress means to push down, push it away, lock it away. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise. They became fools, and notice, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What these verses, if you were to keep reading, you would say three times, you would see three times, God gave them over, God gave them over. God gave them over. What I'm telling you is the scriptures teach us that there's a natural bent of man to run away from God and to seek after the things that the world might 
offer all to the destruction of mankind. Now the fact of the matter, gang, is this. This boy is no different than me. This boy is no different than you. And don't you think for one minute that what you read about on TV or read about in the newspapers and see on TV about some of the horrendous acts of what you might think are decent people would never be you. I'm telling you, if there's one thing I've learned in my 60, almost 62 years of living, is that man's capable of doing the worst, most heinous thing in the wrong time. Because man loves to sin. Years ago, before, before I, I surrendered to preach, I, uh, I was with my pastor. My, my hero was my pastor. And uh, we had had a, 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 a big leader of our Southern Baptist Convention fall into sin, tragically fell, just destroyed. Church, you need to pray for your pastors. Pastors of our churches, when pastors fall, everybody feels it. This was a big guy in the Southern Baptist Convention, and he fell tragically into sin. And I remember I was with my pastor and I ran to my pastor, ran up to my pastor, oh, Brother Step, I'm just so glad you're my pastor. I know you would never do anything like that. And boy, he stopped at me and he said, son, I was young then. He said, son, let me tell you, there's only one throne. And there's only one that's capable and qualified to sit on the throne. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you put that burden on me. See, there's something inside of man that runs after the world, that loves to sin and desires to sin. As I was working through this passage, I, I was thinking about the, our, our kids and our youth ministry. I, I'm going to tell you, I think we have one of the best kids ministries and youth ministries around. And we had just come off a, a wonderful camp jam and nobody shot each other, so we did good there, you know. And our youth had, had were down at beach camp, and the reports I got is nobody shot each other down there, maybe rubbed a little bacon or something, you know, whatever that means. Uh, but they were having a good week, and, and then VBC was coming right on to us, and, and I was thinking about, man, what a great week. Two vacation Bible schools in one church. How awesome is that? And so much sacrifice from people, and so much service, and, and, and then I, I was reading about the younger boy, and it began to hit me, you know. As hard as it is for us, and as much as we desire to, to be the kind of church, we're not doing a good job. And parents, I want you to know, I'm saying this with love, you're not doing a good job either. Because the fact of the matter is that if we watch some of these precious kids somewhere along the course of life, they're going to get strung out, some of them on drugs. Some of these kids are going to get wrapped up in, in, in alcohol. Some of these precious young girls, because of the natural desire and bent of humanity, some of these precious young girls are going to get kids out of wedlock, and some jerk boy who doesn't have enough integrity is going to push them into that. And some of these kids are going to grow up and be a statistic, just like we are, that over 50% today who would claim the name of Jesus, they'll end up in divorce. Gang, listen to my heart. 
What I'm trying to tell you is that this story, Jesus told the story to let all of us know that if we're not careful, if we don't keep our disciplines disciplines in place, that there's a natural bent in all of us to run toward the creature instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's something in us that loves to sin. And Jesus, in this story, points it out to that younger boy. There's a second thing that I got out of it. Not just the human bent of natural bent of humanity, but the universal result of sin. Now listen to me. Don't you be duped into thinking that destruction will not hit your home. The natural result of a natural tendency to run from God towards sin always results in brokenness and destruction and ultimately death. How much sin does it take for a person to be a prodigal, to be wayward? How far is that distant country? How about one sin? How about one step away from God? I want to read to you something. You may not get anything else out of today, but I pray, God, you'll get what I'm about to read to you. Here's what I wrote down. We were created for eternity. You believe that? Gang, do you believe that? Yeah, you better believe that. Because this is a fleeting thing, and you're going to spend eternity somewhere, right? So I think we all would agree that we've been created for eternity, right? Now, if we've been created for eternity, then it's impossible for anything in this world to ultimately satisfy our soul. Now, we may run after the world, and for a time, we may think that we're enjoying the world. We may think the world is satisfying us. We may think that we're getting it all. This boy, for a while, when he had his wheelbarrow full of daddy's goods, was living the life. Jesus called it blowing his life. We may think we're enjoying it, but I want you to know that when the world is through with us, our souls will still be empty. Our thirst will still be unquenched, and our hunger will just be as acute. Sin is insanity, and it will destroy your life until you come to your senses. Now, gang, I, church, I, 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 I want to be personal with you, okay? So hear my heart. I believe we, as a church, I think we have been awfully weak over the last few years. I, I confess to you that I believe that we've allowed some of our discipleship areas, some of our accountability areas, to slide some. And I want you to know, and I'm going on record to you, that this fall, there's going to be an all-out assault on discipleship from Indian Springs Baptist Church. I believe that we have not done a good job. 
and we're working hard, and we're planning hard to change some things. I've committed to walk alongside Lisa in our preteens. We're, I, I had wrote a book about discipleship. I'm rewriting that book. She and I are going to take your preteens, and we're going to start teaching them doctrine. We're going to talk to them about the basics of who God is and what the Word of God says what heaven and hell are, and how the Holy Spirit comes to live. And we feel like that we've got to do a better job. And by gollies, we're going to do it. And we want you to hold us accountable to it. But can I be bold enough to say to you parents, as bad as we have been, you've been worse. All we are is a church. We're to come alongside of you. The primary responsibility of capturing the minds of the kids is yours. Hollywood has already said it. They've stated that their goal is to capture the minds of the young people. Well, I want you to know unashamedly, without any reservation, our goal is to capture the minds of our children. And that we haven't done good and you haven't done good. And it's time for that to change. We've got to change it in this culture in which we live. What I'm saying to you parents is that when we offer a class of doctrine, you ought to get off your butt and get your kids here, and you need to be involved in it as well. The reason you probably can't talk to your kids about God is because you probably don't know much about God to your own shame. And I believe we as a church cannot... I am, I, I'm not going to lose these kids. And you better say the same thing about your own kids. God help us. That's what this story's about. There's a natural bent towards sin of humanity, and sin always, always has a bad, bad, bad payday. And I don't want these precious little boys and these precious little girls, I don't want these great teenagers to go out into the world and wonder what it's like to get drunk or to shoot up are to do things that they have to take care of a baby for the rest of their lives and give away something that God gave them to save for that special day when they get married. That's God's plan. That's what the Word of God says to us. And it's time, parents, and it's time, church, for us to get real because Satan's killing our kids. We can't let it happen. One last thing, and then, then we're through. There's a natural bent of humanity shown here. There's the, 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 the uni universal result of sin that is shown here. But gang, listen, there's a supernatural work of God here. That's what's so cool of the story. The boy, for the first time in a long time, started thinking right. He came back to himself. He came home, and the Bible says that the father was watching, and the father was waiting, and the father was welcoming, 
You see, Satan's desire is to keep people from facing the reality of life. Satan's desire is to keep people from facing the reality of their condition before God. Satan's desire is to keep people from facing the reality of eternal condemnation. Satan's desire is to keep people from facing the reality that God forgives sin. That God grants in his love, God grants repentance. That God grants faith. Satan doesn't want you to know today that God forgives your sin. Now, dear people, I, I, I don't know exactly where you're at. I, I, don't, I don't know your past. I know my past, and it stinks, you know? And I don't know where you are. You... You may be far away from God right now. Or maybe you have been far away from God. And I realize we can do nothing about the past other than confess it and God forgives. But I'll tell you one thing the past can teach us is not to do it again, right? Not to go that way again. And certainly the past can teach us not to let our kids go that direction. I don't know where you're at but I hope I can impress upon you that when we have opportunities to help you divorce care, grief share, um, we have Bible study, men and women Bible studies, we, we, uh, we have Awanas, we have, we're going to be preteen doctor, Ma, Mark, teach, we have a youth pastor that believes the word of God and teaches the word of God. We have youth and youth services. We have Sunday school that we're trying to to, to strengthen. We have small groups we want to uh, improve on. We, we, what I'm trying to tell you is it takes sacrifice, it takes investment. And the result of it is something that glorifies God. But it doesn't begin until you come to your senses, until you come back, until the Father opens his arms. And says, come home. You see, this old boy never realized that everything he ever wanted and everything he ever needed was right where he left it. At the Father's table. At the Father's table. Maybe, maybe, Daddy. Maybe, Mother. Maybe it's time for you to come back. And maybe when... Your kids see that. Maybe they're going to change. Maybe all of a sudden there's going to be a kindling of the things of God in their life. Maybe, maybe that sweet daughter of yours will look that boy in the eye and say, Don't you even try it, dude. I'll tell my daddy and he'll kill you. You know? Maybe, maybe, maybe that boy. Well, I have enough guts to look that beautiful girl in the eye and say, I got to go home and take a shower. I'm dying here. I'll call you Mara. Huh? Maybe when it comes time to, 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 to smoke a joint and there's all this pressure, maybe that little boy or that little girl might say, you know, I don't think that honors my God. I don't need that. 
I got something better in store. The Bible tells me that my God is sufficient for everything in my life. It'd be good if they heard that from mommy and daddy. Certainly they better hear it from church, from a preacher. What I'm telling you is, if this works, it will work if we do it. If we do it. If we do it. And God help us, folks. We got to do it. We got to do it. We, we, we lose this generation. We lose this generation. We've lost our nation. You know, I read a statistic. Oh, man, I got to hurry. We ain't even had the offering yet, have we? Ooh, I read a statistic that, that kids, uh, they, don't, they don't leave church when they go to college. We think, well, they get out of high school and they go to college, they never go back to No, no. So I read somewhere the other day, like 90% of them, we, we lose them in preteens. We lose them in high school. Now, they may come physically, but they're not here mentally. They're not here spiritually. What I'm telling you is there has to be a new paradigm. There has to be a whole new and we're going to do our best, and we want you to join us as we do it. Well, let's pray, okay? This precious one to be baptized can, can, can slip out. Let's pray together. I don't know what God wants to do. I don't know whether you want to pray, come forward. I don't know if you have something, decision you need to make. We'll give you that opportunity when we stand. Father, help us to realize this is not nursery school. This is life. And the world cannot, the world has no power to ultimately satisfy that which is created for eternity. That's us. Only God can do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.